Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand your consciousness, stimulate your thought, enhance physical and mental health, and encourage community. Encourage community, because that's what we have. We have each other in our neighborhoods. We really don't have the state capital in our neighborhood, although in some ways we do. We really don't have Washington, D.C. in our neighborhood, although in some ways we do. And we really don't have what's going on in the rest of the world in our neighborhood, although in some ways we do. What we have in our neighborhood is our neighbors, the people that we see every day, and the people that we see in the post office and in stores, supermarkets, and so on the people we see on the street, these are our neighbors. These are the people we live with. These are the people we either say hello to in a nice way in the morning or we walk right by as if they don't exist. These are, this is our community. For some years now, I've been talking about the importance of raising food in our community. Why is that? Because if everything goes down the drain, and whoever knows what that means for everything to go down the drain, you know, the big apocalypse, having food in our community is very important. Having food that we grow ourselves is a way to deal with inflation. Because inflation, as we all know, is driving the cost of everything up, up, up. Growing food is a way to counter inflation. Fishing, although, of course... The cost of fishing goes up because of the gasoline and the repair of the boats. But fishing, particularly for those of us in coastal regions, hunting is another way. Some of you may not like that politically, but it is a part of life for many. Fishing and hunting, growing food, encouraging community, talking to one another. They say that the psychologists are the priests of the 21st century, that a religion died. I think it was Nietzsche that declared that God is dead. Well, whether you have your own religion or whether you have psychology as a religion, it's a way of being, of establishing a moral compass, of connecting with other people. And that's why I beat the drum for encouraging community as part of the mission of mind, body, health, and politics. Hang out with your neighbors. Hang out with them. Your neighbors are actually your family. Your biological family is one part of your family. Your neighbors are another part of your family. I got a, uh, an email from Chris Lindsay. You, remember, you may remember that I've had Rob Campia on this program a couple of times. Rob Campia is the founder and director of the Marijuana Policy Project, which is the most influential lobbying group for the legalization of marijuana in the United States. I had the good fortune of sitting on the National Board of Directors of the Marijuana Policy Project for three years. Well, I got this from Lindsay, Chris Lindsay at the Marijuana Policy Project just before coming to the studio. And here it is. Legislatures in California passed a series of historic bills on Friday that would create both protection and rules for medical marijuana cultivators, testing labs, dispensaries, and other businesses. Governor Jerry Brown, who weighed in with support in recent weeks, is widely expected to sign these bills into law. 
He will have only 12 days to sign or veto the bills once they are formally transmitted to him. While not perfect, the legislation is innovative in many respects, including by establishing a wide range of licenses and key protection for deliveries. It provides for a slow transition with protection for collectives and other businesses at least until early 2018. This legislation is a huge step for an industry some believe brings in over a billion dollars annually. California was the first state to grant seriously ill citizens access to medical cannabis. Again, California was the first state in the Union to grant seriously ill citizens access to medical cannabis. Since then, nearly two dozen states have followed California's lead and passed similar protection for patients. But California fell behind when it came to protecting those that provide to those patients. Sadly, the Golden State became a poster child for what can happen in an unregulated system, and news stories of law enforcement raids and arrests have become all too common. The regulated system passed on Friday would be a huge improvement for communities, patients, and providers. Thanks are due to the hard work by legislators, the governor, and the many groups that contributed to this historic effort Chris Lindsay says, please share this email with friends and family in California. That's why I'm reading it to you on air. Feel free to pass what you're hearing around. Look it up online. And by the way, in addition to thanking the governor and the various groups, let us really put our hands together and applaud the work of the Marijuana Policy Project, MPP. You can look them up on Google. They have done a fantastic job of helping us out of this incredible morass that we're in where we've got perhaps more young people in jail for minor and other size marijuana problems than any other country on the planet. Wow. Oh, I don't even know what to say about that topic. Lives ruined. Lives ruined. Families hurt. Families separated over marijuana, a vegetable that grows out of the ground. That people figured out that if you eat it or smoke it in various forms, it changes consciousness, and we made it illegal and thereby ruined tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people's lives. It's a very sad thing, and it's very positive that California is leading the way out of this. Here's something from the University of California Wellness Letter. They did a major article. You might want to look it up yourself. It's uh, Volume 31, Issue 10 of the Spring-Summer 2015 issue of the Berkeley Wellness Letter. They did a major on dietary supplements A to Z, 26 products. The bottom line, folks, is that most, most of what we know about dietary supplements indicates not working, don't know enough yet. Uh, here's one on Butterbur, don't take. Uh, here's one on CLA, conjugated linoleic acid, don't take, especially if you have diabetes or liver, the risks outweigh the small. Here's one on glucosamine, and remember old glucosamine and chondroitin that so many of us were taking? They say, we suggest you forget about glucosamine unless you're willing to pay $20 or more for what is a month or more for what is probably a placebo, right? 
sure, if you can afford it, you pay the 20 bucks, you get the placebo effect, and if it works, you're a happy camper, even though it wasn't the glucosamine and the chondroitin. Oh, boy. Uh, They go on and on. They talk about lysine. And does it help for herpes that so many of us have heard about? They say we do not recommend lysine. Um, Jojoba, our take until well-designed clinical studies show that jojoba supplements are safe and effective for weight loss. Don't risk it. Melatonin, each one of these, one after the other, kava kava, omega-3, quercetin, the queen of antioxidants, Resveratrol. What do they say about resveratrol? Promising? So far, no clinical trials on its effects. St. John's warts? Hmm, well, there's some question about St. John's warts. Uh, No, not about his warts, actually, about St. John's wart. That was a funny thing I said. Even CoQ10. They claim, University of California says, overblown. The claims are overblown. And what about tryptophan? So many of us have taken tryptophan. I have. Don't take L-tryptophan, they say. The pills may pose health risks besides the risk of contamination. So, bottom line, University of California, for whatever your belief in their system, is saying... No, 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 or perhaps wait, wait, wait until a lot more is done on dietary dietary supplements. Until then, save your money for something else. Well, saving. We're going to talk about saving now because I'm going to introduce our esteemed guest, Dr. Nick Cozy. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He is the director of Neuropharmacological Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin. He's got wide range of interests. They include antidepressants, psychostimulants, intactogens, we're going to find out about those, drug discovery, consciousness, and medicinal, medicinal chemistry. He also wrote a landmark paper on something called the Church of the Holy Light of the Queen, which we're going to find out about. We're going to talk to him. Welcome, Dr. Nick Cozy, to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Well, thank you, Dr. Miller. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you this morning. Am I pronouncing your last name correctly? Yes, it's Cozy. Good. Sounds cozy. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Nick, how, just to give some, some background, how did you get into this field of being, before I say how'd you get into the field of, of, uh, of pharmacology, psychopharmacology, what is psychopharmacology? Well, the pharmacology itself is the science of drug action in a nutshell, and psychopharmacology is focused on drugs that affect consciousness. There are some other forms of pharmacology, neuro pharmacology is the science of drugs that affect the nervous system. So some drugs affect the nervous system but don't necessarily affect consciousness. That would be the, uh, the psychoactive drugs. So that's what pharmacology is in a nutshell. My interest goes back uh, several decades um, I, as a graduate student uh, in uh, pharmacology, I 
was drawn to uh, studying drugs that affected consciousness. I, I, I've been a student of consciousness since I was a, a young man, and I saw the drugs that affect consciousness as tools to be able to learn about how the brain functions, how we sense the, the world around us, uh, how we, how our emotions uh, uh, come about, uh, and so on. Well, you've, uh, you've written well over 30 professional papers, and some of them, the titles alone, would be uh, challenging for most people. Let me give you, you know, the listeners an example. Here's the, the title of, uh, of a couple of, uh, of Nick's uh, professional articles. Uh, 5-HT2A receptor antagonists inhibit potassium-stimulated Y-aminobutric acid release in rat frontal cortex. Or here's another one. The, in addition, the inhibition of plasma membrane monoamine transporters by B-ketoamphetamines. Th- these are, this is pretty heady stuff here. And you go on. I'm going I'm to perhaps pick out one, one more. Here's an interesting one. Microwave accelerated preparation and analytic characteris- uh, characterization of 5-ethoxy-NND-alkyl. And then I can't even re- read some of these letters. They look like they're written actually in Greek. Tryptoamines. They are written in Greek, eh? <laughs> they are written in Greek. Yeah, okay. Well, but then when I dug through... Here I find one that is of interest to this program. Dimethyl tryptamine and other hallucinogenic tryptamines exhibit substrate behavior at the serotonin uptake transporter and the vesicle monoamine transporters. That was a mouthful. Yes. And another one, pharmacological studies of some psychoactive phenylketylamines, no, phenyl... Alchemines, intactogens, hallucinogens, and anoretics. I think we want to hear about those studies. <laughs> okay. Can you put them in language that our listeners and I well, can understand? What are you looking for and what would you find, Nick? Yeah, so my research is what we would call basic science research. I, I don't work with patients or I, I'm not a clinician, I don't work with human beings. Uh, most of my research is in vitro uh, research, that is, it takes place in a test tube or a glass plate. Some of my work has involved um, rodents. Uh, I no longer work with rodents, uh, but some of my colleagues do. The kind of three main areas of my interest has been in... Uh, well, psychedelic compounds, also called hallucinogens, um, drugs that have antidepressant properties, and drugs that have stimulant properties, uh, so-called psychostimulants. These are kind of the three main areas of my research. Hallucinogens, antidepressants, and psychostimulants. Yes. Okay. And... uh, so, uh, you, t- you know, you read some of the titles to our papers. These are papers um, I've published um, in scientific journals. These are, you know, peer-reviewed journals that are kind of specialty journals. They're generally uh, 
of interest to other pharmacologists or medicinal chemists. So the, the titles kind of explain what the paper is about, but you kind of have to be knowledgeable in that field to make sense of the title. Um, Let's talk first about your work with antidepressants because, okay. because the reason I asked that one first is because as a clinician, what we know is that the highest percentage of people who come to us for help in our offices are bringing to us either depression, anxiety, or some combination of depression and anxiety. That's a ver very common symptom. So, yeah. t so tell us some about your work with antidepressants. Well, the current model for depression involves these what are so-called monoamine neurotransmitters. These are substances that many of your listeners have probably heard about, substances such as serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and many of the currently prescribed drugs that are used to treat depression affect serotonin or dopamine or norepinephrine or, or sometimes all three. And my research in this area has been focused on um, designing and synthesizing compounds that do affect those neurotransmitters. That affect serotonin, so, dopamine, and norepinephrine? Yes. Okay. And so uh, one of the areas of interest has been to identify patterns in the chemical structures of these substances to, to try to identify what, what features make um, a, a, a chemical, a molecule, more effective at, say, the serotonin, um, at serotonin function. Or uh, if you change the structure a little bit, will they have maybe more of a dopamine uh, character? And so I, I'm interested in the, in the kind of systematic alteration of chemical structures to see what, what effect that produces on these systems. Most of my research has been focused on the serotonin system, but I've done a, a, a number of projects involving bo both serotonin and dopamine, or serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. Is the basic presumption here, the, or the working hypothesis, that it is serotonin that's a major player in what we can call depression, and that the people who are suffering from depression have a, an, what might be called an imbalance in their serotonin level? Well, that's one uh, model, and it's a model that has been um, popular for probably two or three decades. Some newer research points to another brain substance called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF. And this substance seems to have a more direct effect on, on mood, in, in particular on depression. And the thought is that the serotonin or the dopamine or the other monoamines, in fact, 
they do. We know that they affect BDNF, but it's it's upstream of that of that molecule. Uh, it's been recently discovered by a hello. We seem to have lost him. So let's talk about uh, what uh, what Dr. Nick Cozy is talking about while uh, Mike is getting him back on the phone. We've got these neurotransmitters that are floating around, okay? You know what they are. They're chemicals that uh, move around in the brain, and they're called neurotransmitters because they transmit neurological information. And the theory that, uh, that Nick has been talking about, and the one that's been prevalent for decades, is that when we're suffering, from depression, for example, and that people particularly who suffer from very significant depression have an imbalance in these uh, neurotransmitters, particularly this one called serotonin. So as a result of this, the pharmacy companies, not uh, Nick Cozy, because he's at the university level, and that's one of the reasons we have him on the program. It's a main reason I have him on the program, because he is not being backed by uh, uh, pharmacies, and we can ask him that directly. Uh, he is doing independent uh, university research, which if there's anything out there we can trust, we ought to be able to trust the people doing work at the university, like Dr. Cozy. We're gonna, I'm, he's coming back online right now, and I'm going to ask him this question directly. But you can understand why, from what he's saying, that since serotonin is considered to be a major player for decades, scientists like Nick are studying serotonin, and they're sort of studying what can be done to make changes in the serotonin, and that's why so many of you listening are quite familiar what's what what's referred to as the SSRIs, which are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. What that means is that they go in there and they stop, he will explain better than I, the serotonin from being reabsorbed into the system, therefore allowing for a buildup of the serotonin, which hopefully will balance our chemical state. Nick, are you back on? Yes, I am. Okay, good. How am I doing in explaining uh, serotonin effects here uh, on the Yeah, filament? that's accurate. The, the SSRIs, uh, in fact, uh, prolong the duration of a serotonin signal um, and, and, and intensify it. I'm not sure if my comments on BDNF uh, were picked up. I got that. Brain-derived okay. neurotropic factor, which is another factor in affecting uh, uh, depression. Yes. Uh, the recent research indicates that BDNF promotes the formation of what are called dendritic spines. These are structures on neurons uh, that form synapses, and BDNF increases the number of synapses or, or of sites uh, at which synapses can form, and so this is a physical mm, correlate with uh, with mood. Uh, we nobody knows how a structure of a neuron leads to a feeling. Uh, we that's the that's the gap between the physical and the and the spiritual or mental, if you like. Um, we can describe these systems, um, but 
to say that we really understand uh, what a feeling is or what a mood is is really beyond uh, our ability at present. While you were uh, disconnected there uh, very briefly, uh, one of the things I said to our listeners, Nick, is that as contrasted with so much research that is being subsidized and therefore influenced by the pharmaceutical companies, you're an independent researcher working at a university and you don't have that financial agenda behind you. Was I accurate in saying that? That's correct, yes. Okay, so we can get, if there's such a thing as getting the real scoop without having it powered by the money that's behind it, we can get it from you. And so I'm now going to ask, what can you tell us about the effect of LSD on brain function and particularly on, on serotonin and on brain function in general? What happens when our listeners, many of whom listening to this program, take LSD? Tell us what goes on inside, please. Well, from a physical point of view, LSD binds to what are called receptors uh, on neurons. These are protein structures on nerve cells, and LSD alters the function of these receptors and therefore alters the function of the nerve cells. Now, it indeed affects serotonin, uh, but LSD in particular affects numerous other receptors as well, other than serotonin receptors. We know that it affects dopamine receptors. It affects uh, norepinephrine receptors as well, um, histamine receptors, and there are other targets for LSD. There are been approximately 40 different receptor targets identified for LSD. Now, it is believed that certain subtypes of serotonin receptors. Now, just backing up a second, there are 14 known forms of the serotonin receptor. These are all different gene products, different proteins. And it is believed that most of the effects of LSD come from its action at a small subset of those 14, uh, perhaps two or three of those receptors. So when this goes on, when the LSD interacts with the serotonin, and um, you've stated that it, it also interacts with many other things, including glutamate, GABA, acetylcholine, the cannabinoids, echocannabinoids, I mean, there's a lot of interaction with LSD. We experience, and I'd like you to you know, give us your list, because you have a list, of, of how we experience that, including such things as synesthesia, altered consciousness. Go on with yeah. your list, please, of the different things that happen on the, on the behavior well, and, and, and experiencing level. Right. So the experiential effects of LSD include uh, changes in sensory processing. That's one of the kind of well-known effects of LSD, uh, the way things are perceived, uh, sounds are sometimes perceived in the visual field, or um, things that are seen are perceived as a sound, or a sound might be perceived as a touch. This is a phenomenon of synesthesia, where a stimulus in one sense, one sensory modality, such as vision, is actually perceived as a 
another sensory modality. So this this is one uh, area the sensory changes. There are also changes in the sense Be, before of self. we before we go to the second one. So we, we, it's in, in synesthesia, a person can hear a sound, but they can experience it, for example, as if they feel the sound or as if they see yes. the sound. Is that correct? Yes. So that would be very unusual sensorily. I mean, for that, that's part of what the unusual aspect of this particular uh, medicine is. You take it yes, in... Yes, indeed. It's synesthesia, yes. That's, that's, it's unusual. And I would just uh, comment here that the states produced by psychedelic agents, which include LSD but other agents as well, are unique in that they don't really, there isn't really a state of consciousness uh, that most people are familiar with that they relate to, other than perhaps dreaming. Uh, so it's kind of a dreamlike state. But other psychoactive drugs produce states of consciousness that most people are familiar with. For, for example, a sedative might make a person relax, might make them sleepy. Well, everybody knows what that feels like. But the psychedelics are unique in, in producing these other changes that are kind of outside the normal um, consciousness that we're familiar with. So it can be potentially destabilizing, though perhaps if you have, depending on your set and setting, which you'll talk about, if you're in a positive state, it can be positively destabilizing, but still destabilizing. Well, yes, uh, Destabilizing is not necessarily a word I would choose. They, 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 they change normal perception. Um, they seem to favor feelings of um, like ego loss, um, uh, relating to others, uh, feeling connected to other people. In fact, I believe that this is one of the main reasons they've been used for spiritual purposes for millennia by uh, people around the world, uh, notably in the Americas, uh, in South America, the use of substances, psychedelic substances such as um, ayahuasca, uh, the use of peyote uh, by Native Americans, uh, the use of San Pedro cactus, the use of psilocybin mushrooms by the Mazatec in, in Mexico, uh, these all have a, a spiritual or um, religious uh, use, and I, I believe it's because they produce this kind of state that is non-ordinary and um, can generate feelings of connectedness with the universe. Is that why you sometimes use the word intactogen? Well, the word intactogen means to touch within, it's a word that was coined by Dr. David Nichols um, in the mid-1980s to describe the effects generated by MDMA, um, a drug that your listeners may be familiar with, also called ecstasy. Now, this drug produces uh, unique effects. I don't necessarily classify MDMA as a psychedelic uh, the the state of consciousness that it produces is is unique, um, and it's really unlike the state produced by LSD or mescaline or psilocybin. But that's just getting to the definition of the word intactogen. Um, um, 
I, I don't use that to describe psychedelics. Uh, that's the word I, I prefer is, is just psychedelics. Uh-huh. Talk to us about time and space alteration in, with psychedelics. Well, and that's another well-known effect of psychedelic agents. Uh, the sense of time is typically altered. Usually, uh, there's a perception that time has been stretched, that, it, that events uh, seem to take longer than they do in a, uh, an ordinary uh, state of consciousness. Um, and sense of space, uh, too, the distance to the objects can be altered, um, uh, the uh, one's place in the universe, the, the spatial relationship that one has with their environment can be altered. So um, these are another two kind of uh, senses that are altered by psychedelic agents. And what about changes in body image? Well, and so sometimes people will report that they feel very, very big, uh, like the size of a galaxy, for example, or sometimes very uh, small. So this is a, a kind of a body size image change, but also in what it means to be a human being, um, changes in the image of what it means to be human. Um, sometimes people f- report that they're, they feel that they're more than human, that they're, that they're part of the earth itself, connected to the earth, and come out of the earth. Um, so these are some other changes that can occur, changes in body image. How about changes with regard to what we call meaning? Another area is, in fact, meaning. Um, uh, people report that things which may have seemed insignificant suddenly take on great meaning. Um, um, people become uh, somewhat suggestible. Uh, things that they may have ignored previously all of a sudden become um, very important. So that would be one, you know, a change in meaning. And these substances have a variety of effects, and it would be impossible to categorize them all in the time that we have. Um, they affect memory uh, access. Uh, people can retrieve memories from childhood sometimes. There's also uh, many people report extrasensory phenomena, um, uh, feelings of uh, recognition, um, uh, feelings of telepathy. This is another area. So, so extrasensory phenomena and uh, Again, feelings of spirituality. There are numerous changes, and I, you know, hesitate to be able to list them all for you. And they're they're pretty individualized as well. You're listening to uh, Dr. Nick Cozy. He's the director of the Neuropharmacological Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin. He comes to us from Wisconsin today. You're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're going to take a call right now, Nick. Let's see what our listeners uh, want to say to us. Thank you, Michael. Okay. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello? We'll try it again. Push that little button. Hi there. Can we get that person on, Michael? I don't think... Uh, give it a try. Are you on the air there? Thank you, Michael. Welcome to yeah. 
Okay. Turn your radio down and ask your question, please. Hello. Hello. My name is um, my name is Mel Berkowitz, and uh, can you hear me? My I can. Is... We can hear a radio in the background. If you'd be so kind as to turn it well, off. That's the com- turn the computer off, please. Okay. Now, uh, first of all, I'm a graduate of Stuyvesant in 1955, like you, and um, I'm curious about uh, the chemist who uncovered LSD. He breathed in a large amount. Was there any psychological damage to his mind and mentality? And secondly, I think these drugs, the pharmacology, we want to understand what happens in the mind and emotions. We have to connect it to the various uh, sections of the brain, the areas, centers of the brain, rather than just nerve uh, transmission. And we have, they have to use that kind of approach to understand behavioral uh, the reaction to these neurotransmitters. Okay. Mel, thank you. So where are you, Mel? He's gone? Oh, darn it. We went to high school together, 1955, graduate of Stuyvesant High School in Manhattan. He introduced himself. Okay, Nick, you heard what he's asking. First of all, he wants to know whether Albert Hoffman, who bumped into uh, uh, LSD, I believe, in 1938, what do we know about what happened to Albert? Well, yeah, he synthesized it in 1938, but he didn't discover its psychoactive effect until five years later in April of 1943. Um, He lived to the age of 102 years old and was absolutely lucid and sharp until his last day on Earth. So, I know Rick Doblin went over and celebrated uh, his 100 and, I believe, second birthday party with him. Yes. So I think the question was, was there any kind of, was there any damage uh, and LSD, or in fact, all of the psychedelics, do not produce uh, damage, or they do not uh, produce any um, toxicity on the nervous system. Uh, that's well known. So they're very safe in that regard. That's now, for, the that, second question. Let's was, just stay. Let me just uh, under, uh, one second, Nick. Kindly, uh, let's just underline what you just said for the <laughs> listeners, Dr. Nick Cozy. Director of Neuropharmacological Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, not on the payroll of any pharmaceutical company, is telling us that these psychedelic medicines do not do damage to our brain system, to our neurotransmitters. Did I get that right, Nick? Yes. That's very There's no evidence that psychedelics produce any kind of overt toxicity to the nervous system. This is quite something, considering that these are drugs or medicines that alter sensory perception, create synesthesia, they alter time and space perception, they change mood, they change body image at times, we get mood changes, euphoria, sadness, we get a a profound sense of meaning, we get a connection with each other in deep ways that we never have before, Dr. Cozy describes dissolution of ego boundaries, a sense of shared consciousness, and yet no damage to the self at the same time. 
quite phenomenal. Why'd we make these things so difficult to study, Nick? Well, I believe that the climate in which the laws were enacted, you know, this was in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, I, I believe it was mostly the political climate. I don't believe that the laws were enacted with regard to um, really the science that was available at the time. They, they weren't, these are not scientific decisions, but rather political decisions. Ideological. Mm-hmm. Yes. If you want to call with a question for Dr. Nick Cozy, 707-937-5103. Again, 707-937-5103. What's getting your juices going in research nowadays, Nick? What's really, what's exciting you? Well, lately I've been involved in uh, a project uh, involving uh, psilocybin, and so I've been um, involved in and interested in improving the chemical synthesis of psilocybin. As you may know, and as some of your listeners may know, there are uh, several ongoing clinical trials in the United States involving psilocybin, and... I've been involved in synthesizing this material for these studies and trying to improve the, the chemistry, the, the uh, chemical synthesis, make it a little more efficient, uh-huh. a little more streamlined. You're creating the product for the research. That's fantastic. Let me, we have a caller here, Nick. Let's take it. Thank you, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hello. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. He, your, your expert mentioned no toxicity, but I'm wondering, are there um, known changes, either physical or otherwise, that are lasting after the session or permanent? Thank you. All right, thank you. Yeah, so I think the question is whether there are any lasting changes uh, that are or permanent changes. And, you know, this is hard to answer. Um, certainly, we are altered by all experiences that we have you know, going through life. Um, this could be reading a book that moves us or seeing a movie or hearing some music that we remember and take with us. So to the extent that a memory or an experience produces some permanent change in our brain somehow, um, you know, can't be ruled out. And I, I, would, I would be surprised if these experiences produced by psychedelics don't also do that. Um, it's, it's, you know, we're, fought, we're in the area here of kind of the relationship between physicality, i.e. the brain tissue, and experiences uh, of the world. And and this kind of gets back to what your what your previous caller mentioned too is like how do we connect the circuitry to the experiences? And I don't have an answer for that, and I don't think neuroscientists do. Um, there, there, you know, uh, if one believes that physicality is primary, uh, then one assumes that you need a brain and neurons, uh, and experience somehow arises from these physical 
thing, these cells, these receptors. Um, on the other hand, it's equally plausible that consciousness is primary uh, and that the physical world is an illusion and is uh, created by consciousness, and there are people that believe that as well. Uh-huh. And in fact, if you, if you look around the room that you're in right now, everything that you see started out as an idea in somebody's head. And so, from that point of view, consciousness <laughs> is primary. You can't. So I—that's great, uh-huh. Nick. You, that's great. You can't argue with that. Every single thing you look around the room, it started out as an idea in somebody's head, and it got uh, designed and built and so on. You're 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 right. That, that's inarguable. Uh, Mike's giving me. I'm getting a signal here. Sure, Mike, put him on. We've got somebody uh, trying to get through and being very patient. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, hi. I wanted to uh, address Timothy Leary's controversial role in the illegalization of um, psychosomatic drugs. I'm curious. I've heard ethno-botanical individuals kind of <clears throat> express uh, contempt for Leary and how he, his tune-in, turn-off, drop-out mentality kind of led to a culture that was against psychedelics. I wanted your uh, uh, expert to speak on that. Thank you. History, sure. history uh, question, Nick. Yeah, Timothy Leary. Well, I mean, Timothy Leary was, a, I believe, a brilliant man. I, I've read most of his work. Um, but again, uh, the political climate at the time, um, you have to recall that we were in the midst of a very controversial and unpopular war, the war in Vietnam. Uh, psychedelics were coming out. People were using them, young people. They were challenging the status quo, things like the women's movement, uh, the environmental movement, uh, uh, you know, racial movement. All of these things were happening at the same time, and I, I believe that Timothy Leary, <clears throat> excuse me, catalyzed uh, kind of a fear response in the politicians who enacted these laws, and he, he was quite vocal uh, about his belief that, you know, uh, this experience should be experienced by, you know, everyone. And, uh, and we, uh, so, uh, you know, in some, in some respects, yeah, he probably did, uh, uh, he probably was responsible for at least getting some of these laws uh, which made it more difficult to do research with these materials enacted. Um, you know, on the other hand, things have thawed considerably. Um, this is 50 years ago we're talking, and, and Timothy Leary's been uh, dead for a while. Um, and so uh, I think that in recent times, people have softened their views on research with these substances, and some of the promise uh, that that they offer is starting to be realized. They, they, they have, these are promising therapies for a variety of conditions that are really intractable to standard drug therapies, conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, end-of-life anxiety associated with a, a cancer diagnosis, uh, addictions. There is a, are a number of studies uh, either ongoing or about to begin uh, involving addictions to substances such as cocaine, alcohol, nicotine. Um, and so there are a number of promising areas that are only starting to be explored, um, really, uh, you know, post-Timothy Leary.
by the way, you know, there's a there's a famous uh, study in psychology that I you're that you're aware of. I know you've talked about it. So have I, and that's the study where in the laboratory rats are given a choice of food or, or sex or cocaine, and famously the ch the rats choose the cocaine. Uh, yeah. There's another study that uh, controverts that original study now that uh, Carl Hart in uh, uh, in his book uh, it talks about. Carl is I don't know, do you know him? He's at, at Columbia University, uh, and what he says is that the reason that the rats took the cocaine is because life in a in a cage in the laboratory is so miserable that they'd rather have the cocaine to get out of that miserable life than, the, than sex or food. But when you put yeah. rats in what he calls rat park, namely you put yeah. them in, what, you know, like a suburb, you put them in a beautiful environment, they don't take the cocaine, they'll take the food and the sex. And the analogy yeah. being made there is that people in the behavioral sinks, that's a name that was given to Harlem years ago when it was so crowded, that people in a very intensely a, a dense uh, urban environment when their lives are miserable and they're poor, yes, they will take cocaine also before food or sex, but if you were to put those same people out in the suburbs and give them a decent life, they will not take cocaine. They'll take food and sex beforehand. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yes, I'm aware of those studies. Um, I'm aware of some other studies involving opioids. I, I'm not sure if it was morphine um, but there were opioids that were used instead of cocaine, and uh, indeed it was called Rat Park. And the idea was that a, a poor environment, uh, poor in the sense of, um, of novelty and stimulation, um, disposed these animals to take the psychoactive drug, um, opioids or, or cocaine. But when the animals were offered an, an environment that was enriched, in activities such as uh, toys they could play with <laughs> or nest-building materials or activities, you know, I, 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 uh, one of those, uh, those wheels uh, that they could run around, et cetera, that, the, uh, that they stopped using or, or at least it was difficult to get them to uh, self-administer the drug. Maybe. Yeah, there's evidence for that. I, I believe this... There was a study, and I, I thought the researcher was Canadian. I don't remember his name. It might be this person, Hart. Gabor Mate's work? Was no, it wasn't Gabor Mate. Okay. This was a work uh, in the early 1980s oh. um, uh, that I was aware of, but I don't remember the person's name. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting stuff because so often politicians <laughs> will point to the poor areas and say, well, you know, but they're, they're all a bunch of drug addicts, or they, they're the ones who are using all the drugs. Whereas this research is saying, well, you know, uh, you put almost anybody in those environments and they'll become drug addicts because life is so miserable, drugs are better than nothing. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a political issue. You know, Bruce Lipton, who's been on this program, talks about changing genetic structure through it in this field that's being referred to as epigenetics. Do you see that there's a connection between the, uh, the psychedelic medicines and being able to eventually change our internal uh, genetic structure by the power of the mind? Well, I'm, I'm not an expert uh, in genetics. I can speak a little bit about epigenetics, where this is where the genes themselves are not changed, but rather um, proteins that regulate gene expression um, uh, can be changed. 
um, following a single exposure sometimes to a drug. And so this would be, you know, a putative <clears throat> mechanism uh, whereby lasting changes can occur. This kind of gets back to one of your earlier callers' questions, are there permanent changes? And it's, it's, epigenetics does represent a mechanism whereby a single exposure or a single experience may alter um, gene expression and thereby alter the function of the cells. Yes. Yes. It can happen. Do you see? Do you think that that? I mean, we know that certain scientists, Sagan, I think it was uh, 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 Watson, with the double helix, that they've used LSD for scientific inner scientific exploration. Yes. What? What? Uh, yeah. Well, and Kerry Mollis, uh, the winner of the Nobel Prize a few years ago, who just who developed the what's called a polymerase chain reaction. Or PCR yes. um, has publicly admitted uh, that um, he's used LSD. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't claim that he developed PCR while under LSD, but he found LSD valuable in how in changing the way he thinks about things. Another famous example and well known is Steve Jobs, uh, the founder of Apple Computer, and um, he ascribes some of his insights to his LSD experiences. Um, incidentally, there's a new movie coming out called Steve Jobs, which I, I'm not making a plug for it or anything. I haven't even seen it. It's not out yet, but I'm very interested in how this movie will address uh, Steve Jobs' experiences uh, with LSD. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting the way you stated that just now, that the scientists... With the, uh, he admitted that he used LSD, whereas Steve, yeah, whereas Steve Jobs ascribed some of his work. The the two different words, admit and ascribe, I, I think are very telling, because it's a big deal for a scientist to quote admit that they've used yeah. LSD, isn't it? In, indeed, it, it is. So admitting something is one level of um, opening. But to ascribe something, actually um, uh, explaining one's insights uh, or relating them directly to the experience is another level of, of kind of opening, I believe. Yes. I mean, we're right on the edge of, of this whole field of psychedelic medicine opening up, aren't we? Yes, we are. And I believe that uh, in uh, future years uh, we will that these substances also show promise for um, in, uh, in people that who, who do not have a psychological problem, such as an addiction or anxiety. I, th I believe that um, healthy, normal people may find these materials of benefit uh, in things such as creative problem-solving um, or, or just, just being more creative, um, uh, uh, spiritual insights um, in other areas that are really not being looked at right now. I think that's a perfect place to end our interview. Dr. Nick Cozy, Director of the Neuropharmacological Laboratory at the University of Wisconsin, thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I want to get back in touch with you maybe in a year or so on your latest research and have you back on the program. 
Thank you very much, Dr. Miller. It's been a pleasure to be on your program this morning. Take Thank you. Ca- take care, Nick. And you all, listeners, take care as well. Take care of yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And thank you for listening to today's program on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLora. Please join us again in exactly, I believe it'll be three weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.